Kia ora koutou. welcome to First Up, this is Ra Pare, that's Thursday, the 10th of November, called Nathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, BBC correspondent James Waterhouse joins us from Kiev for the latest on the war in Ukraine. Results trickling through in the US midterms, we'll get Simon Marks on from Washington with his razor-sharp analysis. We talk about the bank's huge profits with the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Grant Robertson and Moana Ellis from the Local Democracy Reporting Programme tells us about a dark, century-old secret in Whanganui. What Whanganui tried to do, it seems, was cover up the story. In fact, they tried to expunge Charles Mackey from the history books. Maria, welcome to First Up, Kornathan Rarere TNA. We begin the programme this morning in the United Kingdom, and it's always a pleasure to get to say hello to our man in London, Henry Riley. Morena, Henry. Hello, Nathan. Hey, so Rishi Sunak, new Prime Minister, um, but a whole fresh new set of scandals. So who is Sir Gavin Williamson, and what's the scandal? Well, you're right. Another scandal. We spoke, I think it was last week or the week before, and there was controversy over his appointment of Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, because of some of her views. Um, now, Sir Gavin Williamson is an extremely controversial figure. He's a, a figure seen very much in the know. Um, his nickname when he was Chief Whip was Spider-Man because he used to keep a pet tarantula in his office um, to intimidate MPs. So he was the Chief Whip, which in essence is the disciplinarian of Parliament. So he is responsible for making sure MPs vote with the government and when there's a particularly tricky uh, bill that they have to pass they deploy tactics whereby you know quite often MPs are intimidated in some circumstances so he's seen it as a sort of enforcer figure he was very influential being David Cameron's private secretary he was then chief whip under Theresa May he's been education secretary defense secretary very well-known man uh, it was knighted last year. He then was brought in by Rishi Sunak because he played a big part in his leadership campaign. He's considered a master of the dark arts, and um, it's all gone pretty pear-shaped for him. Some of these old... Uh, text messages have been uh, sort of brought up where he was having a go at the current chief whip saying being quite aggressive in some ways then a former sort of uh, aide of his alleged that he told them to slit their throat and to jump out of a window it's extremely aggressive language there was then a formal complaint made yesterday evening and I think he realised the game was up and so he wrote to the Prime Minister saying he had resigned but it's another scandal that uh, Rishi Sunak didn't really need Henry, how good is this miniseries going to be? Like, you know, The Crown, which is one they had on Netflix. On oh, this is great. I mean, you would have thought you've seen it all, and then Guy with Spider shows up, which is um, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Let's go now. Um, health services all around the world are stretched. I know we, you know, here I think we would like more um, staff. The NHS over there under huge strain over this pandemic, and now you've got your nurses. Um, are they on strike or are they going on strike? They're going to go on strike, and it's been confirmed this afternoon. Nurses across the UK, we thought it would happen. It's now been confirmed. They're going to strike, and they're going to perform that action, we expect, and we've been told, by the end of this year. This is one of the official unions, the Royal College of Nursing, and members in more than half of hospitals um, will be involved. So it's you know extremely concerning for, for patient care, but they argue that they're not getting a fair pay rise. The government has come back and said that they are getting a, a pay rise. They're getting 4.75% this year. Indeed, people who earn uh, below the average in the NHS are getting slightly more than that, but they've asked for a pay rise at around 11-12% and the government simply saying they can't meet that and so we're a catch-22 now whereby we're going to see various hospitals 
understaffed, to say the least, and uh, patients losing out in certain sectors because uh, various people, including nurses, have decided to go out on strike. Wow. Uh, a, a government expense, which doesn't seem to have been given out as the number you know, that was properly happening, Minister, Ministry of Defence, paying out more than previously disclosed over the deaths of children in Afghanistan. How many died and, and what was the cost? Well, originally thought it was 16. This was between 2006 and 2014. And then a very good freedom of information request was made by the charity Action on Armed Violence. And they found out that a minimum of 64 children received, well, had compensation payments as a result of um, of deaths involving the UK government and involving the Ministry of Defence. Um, in fact, it may be even higher than that. Um, the charity have found out that the number could be as high as 135 because some of the fatalities uh, are describing um, are described as sort of uh, sons and daughters as opposed to children. And so there's a, a, almost like a technicality uh, difference there. But it's, you know, more pressure on the government. It's an extremely worrying story. And um, the UK government have certainly got some questions to answer over it. We've seen a, a lot of arrests happening with climate protests and people, you know, putting pies in the faces of things and spraying things. One of your colleagues at the radio station, LBC, has been arrested at a climate protest. What were they glued to? <laughs> yes, they weren't. Uh, and it's oh, an extremely glued. concerning story, actually. So, um, yeah, for disclosure, I was the I was actually producing that particular program. And um, there was an incident where we, we had a tip off. And indeed, it was not an anonymous tip off. It was actually publicized at certain points on various websites. Just a put out a release saying they were going to disrupt the M25. We heard where they might be. We sent our reporter there, as you do, to report and to be a journalist. And uh, she was then arrested by police. She was searched at the scene. She was then handcuffed, put into a police van. She showed her press card to the police and said, I am a journalist. I am reporting here. She wasn't stood with the protesters. The protesters were stood on motorway gantries. So she was stood on a bridge within sight so she could see the actual protest, but wasn't involved in any way. She was then arrested um, for public nuisance, conspiracy to commit public nuisance. She, it, it took an hour for her to get get there an hour to come back she spent five hours in police custody so she was detained effectively for seven hours this is in an area called Hertfordshire just outside of London the police are now under immense pressure I mean people from across the political spectrum have been weighing in the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has said it's extremely concerning and he's pretty worried about it and you know to be honest this is a journalist who is in her mid-twenties an extremely capable journalist and is extremely brave and has been reporting on her experience today but I think rightly is obviously slightly concerned about reporting going forwards when you have a situation like this where she has been arrested subsequently released it's you know it, it must be said um but it obviously makes various journalists from all sectors of the uk extremely worried if the police are going to arrest them for conspiracy to commit public nuisance it's very worrying well i mean yeah i mean the video of a police person walking up and putting their hand over the camera and saying stop filming or pushing a mic down that's that's always something that's pointed to in countries where they go look at this place it can't run itself so that's um, yeah, yeah. And, you know you look, you look at some of our criticism rightly so of the government of qatar ahead of the world cup and i think if that mm. happened there it would be a huge story in the uk too and this is actually happening in the uk Henry Riley there with us out of the UK. Thank you very much, Henry. It is 12 past five. Russia appears to be pulling out of the city of Kherson. Uh, joining us now is BBC correspondent James Waterhouse, who's in Kiev. Uh, James, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, what is the latest with that, um, with that apparent pullout? 
Well, it's a hugely significant moment. In a moment of theatre, really, on Russian state TV, the general in charge of Russian forces in Ukraine met with the defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, uh, where he recommended that they pull out, they withdraw from the city of Kherson. Uh, Mr. Shoigu agreed. The notable absentee in this broadcast was Vladimir Putin himself. This is something the Kremlin's been trying to navigate. The Ukrainians have been trying to launch counteroffensives from the north on this city. This is the first regional capital which fell to the Russians early on in this invasion. It's hugely significant as it is symbolic. It's somewhere that the Russians were desperately trying to keep hold of. Uh, but it looks like now they are pulling back to the eastern bank of the Dnipro River where they have been digging new defensive positions. And it seems that Ukrainian forces will be able to eventually move in. It is a really big moment in this conflict. It is. Uh, also, too, I see a Russian official in Kherson has been killed. What, what do you know about that? Yeah, so this is the, uh, the deputy governor of Kherson uh, uh, who was reportedly killed. Russian and pro-Russian media were reporting his death in a car crash. There's been no official confirmation on this. And in response, Ukraine has said, look, we don't know the full facts yet. And they're not ruling out that it could be staged. And this is a reminder of the information war too. You know, it could be in Russia's interests, I think, to fake his death potentially as they pull out of the city, which we now know they plan to do so it's again a murky picture but we've seen russia as it's tried to maneuver to prepare for this withdrawal it's tried to move its puppet officials out as well for their own safety and also to preserve their kind of propaganda messaging in that regard so again a murky picture we don't really know what's happening and i think i don't think anyone will believe in her son's liberation until it happens yeah and and also see uh, reports here suggesting ukraine could soon run out of air defenses um obviously that, that's some pretty sustained attack there from the russian missiles and drones what what does this mean for the the conflict as far as you know well i think this is a continuation of 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 ukraine banging the drum trying to secure more air defense systems from the west given over the past six weeks russia has uh, continue to target Ukraine's infrastructure with long-range cruise missiles and so-called kamikaze drones supplied by Iran. It has caused uh, almost 5 million people to experience power cuts over the past six weeks. What Kiev is saying is that around 80% of these missiles are taken out by air defence systems, but crucially, they aren't watertight. We've seen strikes here in Kiev as well as cities across across Ukraine, really, and a big part of Ukraine trying to combat what is going to be a difficult winter where millions of people won't have running water and power. Um, this is a big part of Ukraine trying to survive, really, uh, while the fighting continues on the battlefield in the south and east. So what sort of support does Ukraine need? Well, I think what Ukraine will say is they need more HIMARS missiles, these, these precise long-range missiles that have been used effectively behind Russian lines. It's why I think we've seen a changing in the tide in the fighting over the summer, where Russian supply lines have been frustrated, uh, where um, morale has been affected, where Russia has been forced to mobilise. Um, it's also about the sharing of intelligence that Ukraine needs. Uh, that's proved to be vital. And also uh, uh, armoured vehicles, because 
certainly in the south when I was in Herson, we're talking about a huge expanse in a rural area. And armoured vehicles are pivotal, really, in Ukraine trying to maintain these um, counter-offensives. So I think the biggest thing are these HIMARS long-range missile systems, which Ukraine, frankly, can't get enough of because they've been used so effectively. But nevertheless, there is still stern Russian resistance uh, ahead for Ukraine, and they still occupy around sort of 17% of what is a vast country. So, you know, the needs of Ukraine are fairly simple in that regard. They need the supply to be sustained, uh, especially with the midterm elections in the US. Kiev's very nervous about any change in uh, any changes in political decision making. Yeah, James Waterhouse there from the BBC. Thank you very much. Of course, I think it was uh, the Republicans said that if they got in, they would seriously consider. It was Kevin McCarthy saying they'd seriously consider uh, pulling their finance and uh, help for Ukraine. You're listening to First Up here at RNZ National with Nina, me, Nathan Rarere, at 18 minutes past five. We're going to stay in Europe. We'll go to Sweden. Uh, we are joined, as we do every week, by Dr. Anita Purcell Sherland. Kia ora, Doctor. Good morning, Nathan. So, um, now this is, it's almost like a story that's starting to happen around the world. So here we go. Workers in Greece this time striking to protest soaring costs of living, also inflation. Um, how long do they think the strike will go on for? Well, the workers began a 24-hour strike on Wednesday and thousands of people marched through the streets of Athens. Now, ferries were docked at ports and work stoppages by public transport brought traffic chaos to the capital, while flights were grounded as air traffic controllers joined the walkout. Now, Greece has the highest inflation rate of 12% in the Eurozone's 19 countries. And so the, the strike and protests in Greece are the latest across Europe. As this month, they've seen similar actions in France, Spain, Germany and in Britain. Yeah. Um, there was an awful story that I saw. An, an eight-year-old girl in Germany, I read this last night, freed after allegedly being locked away by her mother and grandparents since she was less than a year old. Tell us about this town and, and expand on the story. Well, she was found in the town of Atadorn, which is just outside of the ta- city of Cologne, after authorities received a tip-off about the eight-year-old. Now, Maria, as she's called in German media, is able to talk and walk, but she's severely physically underdeveloped, and, but there were no signs of abuse or malnutrition. Now, the, the sad thing about this is that the eight-year-old could have been rescued in 2015, Um, When the girl was around six months old, her father, who separated from the mother, was told that his ex and daughter were moving to Italy. But in 2015, he told youth welfare authorities that he'd seen the mother and child numerous times in Atadorn, um, but this was dismissed as the maternal grandparents insisted to the authorities that the pair was actually in Italy. Yeah. Um, Let's move to another story here. A police officer has been jailed in Spain. Why? Now, on Tuesday, a Barcelonian court convicted a Guardia Civil officer for posting a misleading video clip of a sexual assault to try and stir up hatred against migrant children. Now, the fake video was posted on Twitter and it showed a young Moroccan migrant raping a woman in a town near Barcelona. It received something like 21,000 views. However, the actual video, which was just as bad, was of a woman being beaten and sexually assaulted in China. Oh, misinformation. Awful. Now, um, this as well, uh, a Norwegian princess, she's given up her royal duties. Tell us about the, the interesting person she's given them up for. 
Well, um, uh, Princess uh, Margaret, a 51-year-old princess, wants to focus on her alternative medicine business with her fiancé, Derek Verrett. Now, Verrett calls and proclaims himself to be a Hollywood spiritual guru and a sixth-generation shaman. This is a bit like, you know, the Norwegian version of Rasputin, kind of. Now, he he caused controversy in Norway for suggesting in his book called Spirit Hacking that cancer was a choice. Now, a September poll found 17% of Norwegians have a lower opinion of the royal family, nearly all citing, you know, the princess and the shaman as the reason for the drop in popularity. Oh, I'm sure she could assign them some essential oils to, you know, bring their mood back up again. And finally, here's some cool news. In Italy, tell us what the archaeologists have discovered there. Well, this is a really lovely story because what they've discovered is 24 preserved bronze statues of a number of Greco-Roman gods, including those of Apollo and the goddess of health and hygiene, Hygieia. The 24 statues date back to 2,300 years and they were discovered in the ruins of an ancient bathhouse in the Siena province of Tuscany. Most of the statues were found alongside 6,000 bronze, silver and gold coins that date between the 2nd century BC and the 1st century AD. Wonderful. Thank you very much. There she is, Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherland. 22 minutes past five. I'm Nathan Rarere here on First Up on RNZ National. So coming up soon, we're going to find out more about Wanganui's Dark Secret, which is out in the open. And also Simon Marks will be with us from Washington as he's been having a look uh, at the US midterm elections, which seems to be very interesting, which makes you wonder, do pollsters even really know what they're doing? It is 26 past five, time to check in with the Local Democracy Reporting Program now. This morning we're in Wanganui with Moana Ellis. So she's been looking at a really fascinating and actually quite sad story. It's more than a century old and it involves a returned soldier and poet and a former Wanganui mayor. It does seem to be quite a tragic story, but actually despite the fact that a new book is coming out today, in fact Thursday, there's still a lot of mystery surrounding what actually happened. And Paul Diamond spent 18 years trying to piece together what actually happened. So the story is that in 1920, the mayor of Whanganui, Charles Mackey, shot the poet, a returned soldier, Walter Darcy Cresswell, known as Darcy Cresswell. Hmm. It wasn't a fatal shooting, but it just set off this incredible scandal that caused a sensation not only in Whanganui, but throughout New Zealand and actually made news overseas as well. And what Whanganui tried to do, it seems, was shut down the story and and cover up the story. In fact, they tried to expunge Charles Mackey from from the history books. And, yeah. So so what what was behind it? Like, why did he shoot him? What emerged later, there was a typewritten statement that Darcy Cresswell gave from while he was recovering from the gunshot wound in hospital, the statement he gave to police. And in it, he says that he was blackmailing Charles Mackey. He had somehow found out that Charles Mackey was homosexual. And he told Mackey that he had to resign as mayor, otherwise Darcy Cresswell would, would reveal this homosexuality in society and of course at the time it was illegal uh, homosexual acts but you know between men was were illegal so this book that paul diamond's uh, releasing today it offers some insight into 
you know, the lives of people at a time when homosexuality was outlawed and homosexuality was a dangerous secret. And what kicked off in the middle of town on a quiet Saturday afternoon in the part of town that's now the city's heritage precinct actually had, it seems, huge consequences for Mackie. He was, his life was destroyed. Of course, he, you know, his mayoralty was revoked, but his portrait was actually ripped off the um, council chamber walls. Wow. There was a, a, a street in town called Mackie Street, named after him. The name was changed to Jellicoe Street. It's Jellicoe Street still today. His wife, who was a member of Whanganui Higher Society, she divorced him, reverted to her maiden name, changed the names of their three daughters uh, back to her maiden name, and there was no contact between uh, Mackie and his family ever again. He pleaded guilty to attempted murder hmm. and was sentenced to 15 years hard labour. Well, that's an incredible story. That, like you say, is sitting in one of our one of our major cities around New Zealand there, and, and I don't think anyone really would have known much about this. I mean, it sounds incredible to read that book there too. So there's also calls, what, for the offices in which that shooting occurred in to be listed under Heritage New Zealand's Rainbow List project. Yes, and the, the Rainbow List project's um, a relatively new project, and this would be, this is one of the, the first nominations for buildings to be included in that project. The building is now, it's used as, a, well, it's an old printer's office. I've been into the office where this shooting took place. And yes, a, a former councillor and local businessman, James Barron, has applied for this building to be listed. But it's really to keep the story alive. And as he says, to make sure that these stories that are passed on and not actually lost Moana Ellis reporting there from Whanganui. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Day of our life we call the 10th of November. Happy birthday, Ellen Pompeo, Dr Meredith Gray from Gray's Anatomy. I'm just about to start watching that, I hear it's quite good. There you go. Uh, on this, oh, happy birthday to everybody riding a motorcycle today because the very first one, designed by Gottlieb Daimler, German engineer, was unveiled to the world in 1885. People must have gone, why is that half a car? No, no, really, give it a go. It's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, the motorcycle. So think about that as you're riding around on your freedom. Wear your helmet, please, and your gloves. On this day in 1993, a Tribe Called Quest's album Midnight Marauders came out. It was beautiful. And on this day in 1969, Sesame Street aired for the first time on PBS. So it was conceived by Joan Cooney and Lloyd Morissette, and they'd noticed that kids were very good at remembering jingles on TV. But they, why aren't they learning their schoolwork? Kids don't learn like we do. Uh, it's these newfangled pens they're using. They need to go back to a tablet and slate, was what they said. However, they mastered the addictive qualities of um, ads to teach uh, kids things. For example, we all learnt to, uh, well, not we all learnt to, but you know how to count to 12, right? 12.
That's the Pointer Sisters, one of the uh, many celebrities that they had singing things. The uh, By the show's 40th anniversary, it had been broadcast to 140 countries and had made over 4,500 episodes. Also keeping a little bit musicy, we know about this disaster because of a Gordon Lightfoot song. So on this day in 1975, 29 crew members of the Edmund Fitzgeralds died when they sank in Lake Superior. So Lake Superior, known as Gichigami by uh, the indigenous people around it, it is huge. You could fit Lake Topor into Lake Superior 133 times. South Islanders, you could fit 943 Lake Tekapors into Lake Superior or 1.8 Canterbury's, and that's what fits in. It's business. It's business time. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. Representing the business team this morning, it's Mr. Giles Beckford. Kia ora, Giles. I would imagine to you, Nathan. in the business world, that 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, that, that would have spoken to you early, wouldn't it? Look, Sticky and I, uh, Sticky, for those who don't know, being uh, our operator, he says, I've got this is, I've got this on 7-inch vinyl, and it's, <laughs> and it's funky. <laughs> well, and I'm it? just thinking, what say we did market reports like that? Dow Jones up there, 500 points. <laughs> oh, man, no. I mean, I, I did get dead on Morning Report uh, a couple of years ago saying, go on, give us a rap. You know, of the market report. I don't know. I don't know what drugs are on that morning. <laughs> but uh, I Everything said, is horrible. What about and that? I just said, hello, folks. It's GB here with some financial <laughs> gibberish in your ear. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> and I left, I left it at that. Yeah. Uh, I gave the numbers and I ran away. But I have to say that who dreams up these you could fit 500 Lake Topals into oh, Lake maths. Superior? I mean, I mean maths, that actually. just stuns me. Yeah, it's uh, it's eighty two thousand one hundred and three square kilometres, uh, Lake Superior. So they're using the math, the old maths. Well, don't we say you could just drop all of New Zealand in there? Uh, well, no, not quite, not quite. You could nearly fit two South Islands in. Uh, so, sorry, sorry, you could nearly fit two Lake Superiors into the South Island, but just huge. I flew over it once, and it feels like you are flying over the Atlantic. You just can't see the other side of it. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Um, I've we were talking business. Yeah, private investigations on the rise in the workplace. Well, like, what are they looking for? It's not a Dire Straits album replay, I can tell you that. No, very interesting little note that's just come out of a, a firm, Baker Tilly Staples Rodway, and they were saying they've noticed an increase in work uh, and workplace investigations over the past 18 months. In the past month alone, they've done more employment investigations than in the past in the preceding six months. And they're putting it down to the uh, shortage of workers, expectations post-COVID may be driving it, uh, driving it. Uh, I think changing attitudes uh, amongst workers as well. Interestingly, there's a pattern of bad behaviour apparently emerging on both sides, employers and employees. So, you know, trying to sort out such uh, issues as, you know, workplace, workplace disputes, allegations of bullying, bad behaviour, that sort of thing. Uh, so I was just interested that, you know, private eyes are there in the employment scene uh, and business is obviously very good. Hmm. I wonder if there's a shortage of private eyes to do 
uh, investigations into workplace bullying because there's a shortage of workers. Um, yes, what they do. I'm just thinking, John, so who's hiring these private eyes? Is it the workers or is it, it, well, it the, it, the employers? It might, be, it might be workers, but more likely to be employers. Yeah. Although in some instances, and this is another part of the, uh, of the topic that's raised, is that a lot of firms try to do these things in-house uh, rather than perhaps getting in uh, somebody who's experienced, remembering uh, private investigators have to be licensed, but you know it's gathering evidence, uh, and gathering evidence in-house can be fraught, and they say quite a few issues have been complicated by doing in-house investigations, not complying with the necessary rules, regulations, and, and the evidential uh, criteria that need to be applied. Mm. They're ending up in the Employment Relations uh, Authority, or the Employment Court, uh, where it Cases are taking at least a year to be heard, and the penalties being imposed on firms that get it wrong are higher in those uh, tribunals than uh, otherwise. So apparently that's gone up over the past year or so. Mm. So there's some sense, apparently, if it's complicated, uh, convoluted, uh, uh, with potential for a lot of fallout, get in the professionals. Absolutely. Uh, Giles Beckford and, of course, Magnum PI made private investigating look far more interesting than it really is. Like you said, just gathering information. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report at 10 to 7. If you head out with your New Zealand dollar to buy other currency, you can buy 58.97 US cents, 91.68 Australian cents, 58.88 Euro cents, 51.78 British pence, 4.28 yuan and 86.4 Japanese yen. Well, uh, boy, New Zealand out of the T20 World Cup of Cricket. Joe Porter stayed up late to do the watching and then we got him up early again this morning. Kia ora, Joe. How are you? Morena, good, thank you. Yourself? Pretty good. So I was haunted by a one-day World Cup when I saw a New Zealand opener just swinging for the fences in the first over and then going out in the third ball. It didn't get much better, did it? No, it really didn't for the Black Caps. And look, even at 152 for four, their end total after those 20 overs, you thought they were probably still in with a chance if their bowlers could produce something, but they certainly didn't with Pakistan not losing a wicket after 100 until 105 runs and the game was effectively over. But you're right, it would have been lovely to see Finn Allen produce a great innings at the, at the top of the New Zealand order. That is effectively what gave them such a good start against Australia in that almost perfect game they played in their opening game. The most disappointing thing about this, you look at Devin Conway, 20 runs. Captain Kane Williamson with 46. Not too bad, but none of these efforts were huge. Daryl Mitchell, 53. On a, on a better day, those contributions from those individuals would have made for a larger total for the Black Caps, but it wasn't to be. And unfortunately, in the field, it was a pretty lacklustre performance. <clears throat> and let's be honest, the disappointing thing here, and it's not that they lost to Pakistan, who are a very good side, it's that it was probably their worst performance of the tournament, and they left it to the semi-final. Yeah, that's, that's not the time to deliver that one. Oh, well, rather than uh, continue asking about the cricket that we lost, because we lost and we're out, <laughs> there we go. I'd, would there be a Black Ferns team being named today? Yes, that's right. Black Ferns team's named this morning at some point, uh, okay. ahead of, of course, their massive World Cup rugby final against England on Saturday night at a sold-out Eden Park. So does, uh, I I'm thinking here because like, what uh, Liana uh, Michaeli Tu is missing off the back of the scrum, so Charmaine mm-hmm. McMenamin comes in, do you think? Yeah, yeah, that would that would be you know what I would assume unless they go for Kennedy Simon, who's their co-captain and has been coming off the bench. She's more of a natural open side, and that's why they've stuck with Sarah Hidney because she's been playing so well for the Black Ferns. She's obviously incredibly fit and has had such a good tournament. So they could bring Charmaine McMenamin in. She's a former Black Ferns Player of the Year. We know how good she is. A, a great story to have come back over the last few years from a 
pretty serious back injury. And then, of course, yeah, co-captain Kennedy Simon missed the whole tournament until I think it was the quarterfinal against Wales where she came off the bench. And she stayed on the bench so far, but maybe she gets a start this weekend. She, I think, is the, is the reigning possible Black Ferns player of the year. So a couple of fairly handy replacements there. Yeah, you say raining. It is going to be raining, blowing gales the day before as well. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, what the conditions are like and how we go. Hopefully, um, the English team slip over lots in the rain. That's what I'm really hoping for. Uh, thank you very much, Joe Porter. Of course, I'm hoping everyone gives the best account of themselves and both teams play well and make lots of friends. Okay, uh, 20 to 6, Nathan Rarity here at first up here on RNZ National. So between now and the end of the programme, we have a look at those US midterm elections. I think results somewhat surprising, really. Simon Marks will be with us and also we'll hear from the Deputy Prime Minister, Grant Robertson. The professionals and morning reporter here after six with a quick preview of the flagship news program. It's Marnie Dunlop. Kia ora, how are you? I'm good, how are you, Nate? Good, it just feels more, um, I don't know, more official if I call it a program. Program. You have noticed program. that in the American I think you'll start getting texts about your... Um, oh, I bet t- I do. <laughs> 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 Apparently I can't say my ings properly. I have I have a very... I, have, I feel oh. like I've got an ing fan. No, I've got that one too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, good morning. Yeah. Thanks for texting. Good okay. morning. Yeah, good morning. Uh, so, Marnie, what are you talking about this morning? Obviously, we're going over to the US to check in and get the latest uh, from the midterms. A bit of a surprise, some surprise results there. Uh, we'll, I think we're also speaking to Simon Marks, as you are soon. Mm. Uh, but then also, our new research by the Education Review Office shows that children are missing school more in New Zealand, as we've been hearing in the bulletin. So, we go to a range of commentators and principals and people to discuss what needs to be done there in order to cater that. Yes. Uh, cater to that. It is an, it's an interesting thing. Uh, a lot of uh, families go to things like Fiji and Queenstown and stuff in the middle of the term because they feel it's cheaper with the younger kids. Oh. You know, a lot of that happening. Think, I didn't even think about that. Oh, <laughs> yes. No, no, that's a goodie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's us. That's us, mate. Okay, cool. Thank you uh, very much. That's Marnie Dunlop. Uh, who is here with us uh, up after six o'clock. Well, um, where am I? Now, um, is it fair that at the time of a three-decade high inflation, the country's banks are making huge profits? The business community think, yes, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says no. But what is the government actually going to do about it? Well, that's what I asked the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, Grant Robertson. What the Prime Minister was saying here was that at a time like this, New Zealanders have got to look after each other. And she's saying that not every action has to be the government. You know, we've stepped in to support people through things like the child care assistance policy that we announced on uh, the weekend, the other things we've done with the fuel excise cut and boosting people's benefits and family tax credits and so on. This is something where we're asking the banks to actually get alongside their customers in this period of time uh, and make sure that they're, you know, working with those who might have to refix their mortgages uh, to make sure that they can do that in a way that is affordable and sustainable for them. We do need and we do regulate banks and they have to keep certain levels of capital to make sure they're secure and they do have to be part of a competitive market. So we will always look at whether or not we've got the right regulatory settings for that. But in terms of this specific moment, this is a moment that the banks can you know, use their social licence and support people. It's interesting you said that though, you know, New Zealanders helping New Zealanders, because I, I don't know exactly what the number is, but in my head a little voice went, wait, aren't most of our banks owned by Australia? 
Well, they are about eighty percent owned by by right. Australians, but these are New Zealand companies. I mean, they're registered in New Zealand. They pay tax in New Zealand, and you know we do in New Zealand have a corporate tax rate that's a little bit higher than other countries. And I think I heard the ANZ you know make the point the other day they're one of the biggest taxpayers in New Zealand, and we acknowledge that. But we are in very particular circumstances at the moment. This is a level of cost of living pressure we haven't seen in New Zealand for a long time. And absolutely, the government's got a role to play, and I believe we're playing that in supporting New Zealanders. But so do organisations like banks, and this is their chance, having made profits as they have often in New Zealand, uh, to be able to think about the circumstances of their customers. And in fairness, I did hear, I think it was Westpac on the day that they announced their profits, talking about the fact that they're ringing, you know, a thousand customers a week who are about to refix mortgages to talk about what they can do. That's the kind of thing we expect. But equally, we do have regulatory powers and we will continue to look to see whether uh, they're appropriately being used. Why, why not impose a windfall tax like has already happened in Spain and Hungary? Like they just went for it. Yeah, we don't we don't have that history of windfall taxes, and I think one of the one of the things here is you need an event, you need a windfall event, and you know bank profits have been pretty solid in New Zealand for a long time, and and they are by and large in a similar place as a percentage um, of the company's turnover as they have been in the past, but. As I say, we'll look at our regulatory options, but we really say at the moment, having done that, having done well, the banks have got that opportunity to help people out. I see. Well, the opposition suggested an independent investigation into the Reserve Bank and whether its policies might have enabled you know, these sorts of profits. What's the harm in investigating and finding out whether you know, they can do things better? Yeah, and and we always look to that. And the Reserve Bank has responsibilities to supervise and regulate our banking industry. And they will shortly release a report on their monetary policy over the last five years, which has got some independent advisors who've worked on that. We've also signalled that as part of an overall review of COVID and what happened, that within that, certainly my strong expectation that there will be a review of the monetary policy response in there. So there's opportunity to do that. In terms of direct relationship with bank profits, I think you'll find the banks would argue that the increased capital requirements that uh, the Reserve Bank has put on them, that's to make sure that they're stable and we know that they'll survive shocks, has actually meant that's a drain on their profits. So, yep, you know, we there are vehicles and avenues for us to be able to make sure we've done the right thing here, but I don't think the Reserve Bank's policy through COVID um, can be directly aligned with these bank profits, especially given they're actually at very similar levels to what they've been at in recent years. Okay, across the house, Nicola Willis says the Reserve Bank has contributed to inflation rising, and she says she's appalled that you this week reappointed the Governor Adrian Orr without reviewing the bank's performance during COVID. Why reappoint Adrian Orr? Yeah, I think the first thing I'd say is I think this is a really disappointing development that for a long time, really since 1989, the independence of the Reserve Bank's been really important. Anyone who grew up in New Zealand in the 1980s knows what went wrong and why we needed to make sure that there was a separation there between between the government of the day and, and the Reserve Bank when it came to monetary policy. The process around Adrian Orr's reappointments actually laid out in the Reserve Bank Act. And as the Minister of Finance, I can only appoint somebody who is recommended to me by the Board of the Reserve Bank. The Board of the Reserve Bank unanimously recommended Adrian Orr. In turn, I can then reappoint him for one more term Whatever length that is, is the only time he can serve. And so, you know, the idea that we might appoint him for just a year or whatever, I think 
that would be selling him short. It would be selling New Zealanders short. And then there's the substance of the concerns that have been raised, which I just don't think stack up. New Zealand actually has the 10th lowest inflation out of 38 OECD countries. Our economy has come through COVID-19 better than many, many other countries around the world. And so I just don't think there's a justification there for saying he shouldn't be reappointed. But the biggest thing for me, Nathan, was that if I had gone against the recommendation of the Reserve Bank, I th- a board, I think that would have been the most political thing that could have happened. Uh, we need stability, we need continuity, and, and I think Adrian overall has done a good job. I guess I see a lot of governments around the world where others are saying, you know, it wasn't put out for consultation, we weren't put there as well, and, you know, it's important that there's cross-party support for things like this. But do you, do you think it's actually possible to get a proper cross-party support for something like the Reserve Bank Governor? It certainly has been in the past, and that's the really, really disappointing thing here. I think actually what the National Party is doing is trying to wage a bit of a proxy war with us via the Reserve Bank. I think that's highly unfair. Uh, The people who work at the Reserve Bank are professionals. They are by law independent in what they do when it comes to monetary policy, and I believe the politicisation that the National Party has undertaken this week is incredibly unfortunate. I, I see yesterday the government announced it's giving the Commerce Commission power to go regulate fuel prices if they are too high. And I, and I suppose it, it probably harkens back to what we were talking about just before, where you mentioned that maybe it's companies looking after their customers. But do, do you really expect that the fuel companies will drop their prices just because the Commission says so? Well, though, what we're doing is giving the Commission the power to do that and set those prices if they deem the prices that they see to be excessive. So it won't be a matter of whether they cooperate or not. They'll actually have to do it. Um, you might remember, Nathan, that we did a, a Commerce Commission study into the fuel sector, which did raise concerns about the profit margins. We've seen those when that study was done in 2020, or just actually 2021, margins were about 33 cents a litre. Uh, last week, they were about 17 cents a litre. So by putting in place that market study, getting some transparency, we've been able to see those margins, profit margins come down. What this is is effectively a backstop, which says that, you know, if you don't play ball, the Commerce Commission has the power to set the prices. It'll be one of those things that all of us will hope never has to be used, but it is there, and I think ultimately it'll keep prices down at the pump for consumers. Also, there should be a minimum, a maximum price, like salary cap on those two chocolate bars they offer, because it never works out <laughs> as a special. Um, also, thinking too, I mean, like, yeah, okay, let's we've we've been into politics and banks and what have you. Let's, let's shift you across to sport. You're also the sport minister, Black Ferns. How about those Black Ferns? How good? How about them? Okay, such a great question. How good. Last Saturday night was one of the more stressful sporting watching experiences I've had. But what an extraordinary effort by the Black Ferns. I'm I'm so immensely proud of them. I think you know, Nathan, that I put women and girls in sport as my top priority when I became the Minister of Sport five years ago. And a big part of that was the work that we do to support the likes of the Black Ferns to be able to be role models, to be able to leave a legacy. And this team have just done so well. And on the night on Saturday, there were quite a few former Black Ferns. And I, you know, just at that moment thought it's important to acknowledge the wahine who, who didn't have the support that the Black Ferns have now got around them, the coaching, the the training. It's still not all it could be around the country, but it's a damn sight better than it was. And I think those those women who did that over many decades deserve such credit. And this is just so exciting. I think this will be a turning point for women's rugby in New Zealand. And these women should be so proud of what they've done. 
That's Grant Robertson. It is 626. The dust is settling in the US midterm elections. And joining us in amongst the dust as he dusts off his suit is Simon Marks. Kia ora, Simon. Good to have Good you here with Nathan. us. So tell us, what, what's the latest on the results? Well, the dust is actually still flying oh. um, because we've had a couple of results just in the last half an hour that are uh, very interesting. In the House of Representatives, Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney of New York, a Democrat, has lost his bid for re-election. Why do we care about Sean Patrick Maloney? Because he's the chairman of the Democratic Party's Congressional Campaign Committee and he couldn't get re-elected in the state of New York, a Democrat stronghold. Meanwhile, over in Arizona, more good news for the Republicans. Within the last few minutes, it has been confirmed that Senator Ron Johnson, a conspiracy theorist to the max who has adhered himself with superglue to former President Donald Trump, has won his quest for re-election to the United States. States Senate. So the way these races currently stand is that we still don't know who's going to control majorities in the House and the Senate. The smart money suggests the Republicans will have a slim majority in the House. The Senate could be 50-50. There are still races where votes are being counted in Nevada, in Georgia and Wisconsin. And it may be that everything comes down to that Georgia race, which could go to a recount in December if neither of the two major candidates running in incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock or his challenger, uh, sorry, Democrat incumbent Raphael Warnock or his challenger, Trump-backed Republican Herschel Walker, rise above 50%. And because there's a third-party candidate there, they might not. So a runoff that could seal the fate of the Senate possible. I wonder if Herschel Walker's confused with what's going on today. What happened to this big red wave that um, pollsters had and conservatives had been talking about? Because 50-50 doesn't sound like a wave. Yeah, no sign of the red wave that Donald Trump had predicted, and there's no question that these results broadly are a setback for him uh, because many of his candidates have not managed to uh, bring themselves over the finishing line, including, of course, Dr. Oz, the Republican candidate in Pennsylvania. He lost to the Democrat, John Fetterman. I never expected that we were going to turn these red counties blue, but we did what we needed to do, and tonight, that's why... I'll be the next U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. Indeed he will. So no red wave. That's good news for Joe Biden in the White House, who has bucked the historical precedent and hasn't lost anything like the amount of ground that some of his predecessors, including Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, lost in midterm elections. There is another big winner of the night, and it is this man, Governor Ron DeSantis, down in Florida, the Republican re-elected with 60% of the vote. We have embraced freedom. We have maintained law and order. We have protected the rights of parents. We have respected our taxpayers. And we reject woke ideology. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. That is the sound of a man laying claim to the leadership of the Republican Party. He is going to be a big problem for former President Donald Trump. Still, we presume, thinking of unveiling a fresh election bid next Tuesday. Not for nothing does the New York Post today describe DeSantis as the future. Thank you very much.
to Simon. Simon Marks there with us uh, with the latest out of the US midterm elections. Yes, some some very interesting uh, results there as well. Uh, bad news for Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke there of uh, the Republicans. Also bad news for uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, sorry, of the Democrats, you say, Demi McCarthy, uh, Kevin McCarthy as well. And also uh, the election denier candidates as well. So uh, interesting too. Poll Polling. Interesting to see what happens with polling because they were well off on this one. Look, um, thank you very much uh, for joining the program this morning. Morning Report is next with Marnie and Corin. From all of us here at First Up, don't forget you can download the podcast and take us with you whenever you like. Other than that, we'll be back in your ears. Up, up, up.